is Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, that means we're heading into the Judge Judy segment, and we do this regularly because it's a big show, and we follow it for you because, well, you have lives and we don't, and we also follow Shark Tank. These are two big shows, and basically they're stories. Every day, Shark Tank has two or three stories about entrepreneurs trying to get money, and, well... There are different parties uh, competing for Judge Judy's attention and a verdict from Judge Judy. And so today we dig into the case of the cool mom and the deadbeat daughter. Here are Judge Judy's opening remarks after a brief summary of the case. All parties in the matter, McCroskey versus Young Kloss. Step forward, please. 20-year-old Brooke McCroskey is suing her ex-boyfriend, Kevin Young Kloss, for parking tickets and for causing her car to be towed. Do you have a car in your name? Yes. Do you have a valid driver's license? No, I don't. I have a permit. Did you ever have a driver's license in your name? No, I've never had a license. How long have you had a permit? About six months, I believe. Why are you looking at me like that? I'm sorry. Oh, I was just thinking. I'm sorry. How old are you? 20. Who bought you a car? My parents did when I was like 18. They assumed I'd have a license by now. Who are you? I'm my mother. Why would you buy somebody a car that didn't have a driver's license? Because we got it for her as her 18th birthday slash graduation. Oh, there's something wrong with you. How do you get a car for somebody that doesn't have a driver's license? Because she was in the process of getting one. We found it. We just happened to come across a little car that would have been perfect. That's all. Outrageous. It is outrageous. And this is why we love Judge Judy. She just digs in and asks the hard questions. What are you thinking? Judge Judy tells the plaintiff's mother, Linda, to step forward and stand next to her daughter. She then speaks directly to mom. When she didn't get her driver's license, what did you give her possession of the car for? I didn't give her possession of the car. How did she get it? How did she get possession of the car? She had no driver's license. I was teaching her how to drive. Her boyfriend at the time said that he would help get her the hours behind the steering wheel because I didn't have the time. Just a second. So the answer to your question is your daughter didn't have a driver's license. You bought her a car. You put the car in her name? Yes. You put the car in her name despite the fact she didn't have a driver's license. And you let her boyfriend use the car to teach her how to drive. Yes. Now you can sit down. Now you can sit down. And that's what you love about Judge Judy. She gets right to it. And here she sums up the details of this case for the 20-year-old daughter. I also didn't Now you can sit. What? I also didn't live with her at the time anymore. Are you moved in with him? No, I had my own place. How do you get to and from places? Bus. So where did you put the car? I parked it out by my apartment. Well, then you have to listen to me. Let me tell you what the case is about. This case is about the boyfriend who you say parked the car. It wasn't a place where he should have parked the car. You were with him. The car was supposed to be moved in the morning. It wasn't moved in the morning because you couldn't move it because you didn't have a license. So it got towed. Yes. And you want him to pay the fees. And you want him to pay everything else that was attached to that. Yes. Tell your mother to pay it. Now, your case is dismissed. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. She has absolutely no business to give you, who doesn't look responsible enough to take care of a goldfish, a car that can be used to kill somebody. Put your hand down. You don't buy a car for a teenager who's 18 years old. You're 20 years old now, two years, and you still don't have a driver's license, and your mother didn't take the car back She hasn't you. had the car in her possession for two years because I was going through a divorce, and her stepfather had the car until a week before. He, and there, just a second. And then you gave it to her? 
Just a second. Then you gave it to her? Despite the fact that two years went by, she didn't get a driver's license? I had been teaching her. Great. I, Perfect. Uh, you so pay the ticket. That's all. Out. Are kidding me? Pfizer, excuse me. Wow. Step out. It's always amazing to listen to people dig an even deeper hole. They just keep talking. They should just shut up. You've That's watched baloney. Her. That's right. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't. So let's hear what the plaintiff and her defendant boyfriend have to say following Judge Judy's ruling. I think it's funny because that was the point that I made the whole entire time. I just don't know. There's nothing else. He just, I paid his legal fees and he doesn't have to pay me now. I'm not responsible for her car. It wasn't just the car. I'd also paid his legal fees and he just walked away with everything. I wasn't even her boyfriend. He stole my money. He broke in my apartment. He threatened to kill me. She threw a fit in downtown LA. I relinquished the keys to her. He threw the keys at me and told me to go myself. She tried to come at me with, you know, you got tickets and all this stuff. I'm not going be nice to people anymore she doesn't have a job and she wants to find an escape goat and apparently i'm that person he ruined me don't mess with weirdos he killed the nice brook did he just say an escape goat not a scapegoat i never heard of an escape goat before <laughs> i'm not gonna be nice anymore and this is why we love judge judy and it's a morality play folks and if you've never seen by the way, the 60 Minutes piece on Judge Judy, because a lot of people are wondering, how did this woman become the highest paid, well, the highest paid personality in all of television? Because that's what she is right now. And her show has been running for like forever. And it's still number one. And she still doesn't look any different than when she was signed. Do yourself a favor, because there are a million judge shows and none touches Judge Judy, none. And there's a reason. Go to 60 Minutes, click in Judge Judy, and watch what happens. They did two segments on her at her Queen's family court. And it was the highest rate segment that they'd ever had. And TV agents saw it and they went, that's a star. Because her family court was sold out in Queens. Sold out. People went to her family court, packed it up to watch Judge Judy do just what she's doing right here on TV. This is not an actress. This is not an act. Judge Judy had been doing this for a very long time. In fact, her first book was called... Stop peeing on my leg and tell me it's raining. That's Judge Judy. I'm a really smart lady. Oh, you are. You are. And I wouldn't want to get in your crosshairs, Judge. You can't dance fast enough for me. Do you understand? Oh, I understand. Yes, boss. Okay. Okay. And when we come back, more, more of our American stories. And always, more Judge Judy, more Shark Tank. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories, our Judge Judy segment, one of our favorite each week. Have I been respectful to you? There is no excuse for that. I don't think I'm finished torturing you yet. I believe that you are a mother who is pretty desperate. I would lose too many nights sleep over that. Why don't you pay attention?
you had said to me the day I started the U.S. Attorney's Office, you can have a great wife, you can have a great job, and you can have plenty of money, I'd say that's all I'm going to need. Fast forward 13 years, I had a great job, I had a great wife, I had a lot of money, and I was saying, you know, it's not everything. I don't know what is everything, but it's not everything. This is Our American Stories, and you were just listening to Bill Simon Jr., who is most well-known for running for governor in California, also for founding or co-founding a private equity firm, W.E. Simon & Sons. And this is our On Leadership segment, and it's a series that we've been doing, well, from the beginning. And Bill had an awakening during a period which many call the halftime of their lives. More on that later, but first, for this feature where we got to sit down with Bill Simon, we start, as always, at the beginning, where Bill grew up in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and those are the same haunts and near the same hometown as Bruce Springsteen. Dad and my mom were very young. My mother was uh, 19 when I was born. I'm the oldest of seven. My dad was 22. And, uh, you know, we all basically came from the Jersey Shore. My dad grew up in Spring Lake, New Jersey. My mother grew up in Seagirt, New Jersey. And, uh, you know, my dad's father had inherited a lot of money in 1920. And uh, he went through it all. And so dad liked to say that he experienced the good times and the not so good times. So they lived in a big house in Patterson, New Jersey, which at that point was a beautiful town. A manufacturing town. Yeah. Yeah. My great-grandfather was the largest manufacturer in Patterson. Silk dyeing was a huge industry in Patterson. And my great-grandfather was one of the principal silk dyers in Patterson. And he gave it all to his son, and his son went through it. And so Dad grew up literally with nothing in Spring Lake, New Jersey. And he had a bit of a checkered experience in high school. He was asked to leave two high schools, and he couldn't get into college, so he went in the Army. And when he came back from the Army, he met my mother, and he went to Lafayette College because one of his uncles said, you know, I got a place that will accept you. (laughs) And uh, so I came along when he was a junior at Lafayette. And when he got out of Lafayette, he went to work for my mother's father, for his father-in-law. It was the same fella that told my mother, don't go out with that Bill Simon. He'll never make anything of himself. He's a flunky. And, you know, my mother at that point was a freshman in college. And her father said, if you're going to get married to that guy, I'm not paying for your college. So she left, middle of freshman year. And they got married the next year, and I came along nine months and two weeks later. And that started the parade of children. And, you know, my dad ultimately ended up landing a job on Wall Street. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history in terms of dad's career on Wall Street. And then went down to Washington and uh, ultimately as Secretary of Treasury. And then went back home to New Jersey and did a lot of great things in business and uh, was head of the U.S. Olympic Committee. So, you know, in our family, we always had, it was a very exciting atmosphere. You know, Dad, there was always something going on. Dad was like a tornado. 
and there was always something happening. And I think that rubbed off on us. And yet his dad was a complicated guy. Ed Fulner, the founder of the Heritage Foundation, once said about him, quote, he was a mean, nasty, tough bond trader who took no BS from anyone. Well, here's Bill's reaction to that quote. Well, that was true. That was true. I remember going to visit Dad when I was probably 14 or 15 at the trading desk at Solomon Brothers where he ran the government and the municipal bond apartments. And I remember thinking to myself, geez, he's treating everybody the same as he treats me. (laughs) (laughs) But he had a heart of gold. You know, he had a heart of gold. And uh, there was, there were, Dad was like a diamond. There were many facets. The fellow who runs our foundation, Jim Pearson, He's been very active. He's been a public intellectual. You know, he was an overseer at Hoover. He's a great guy. And we were talking one day. We agreed that to know Dad is to love him, but you had to really know him. If you saw him on any given day, you might love him, but you might hate him. If that's the only day you saw him, (laughs) you know, maybe he was having a bad day. But he was a fair guy. He was tough, but he was fair. And so we, uh, we learned early on put all the cards on the table, and take your chances. And, you know, most of the time, Dad was very understanding, very fair. Didn't mean that he wouldn't be upset with you if, you know, you, you did something wrong intentionally, but uh, he, was a, he was a good role model. His dad was known to awaken his children on weekend mornings by throwing buckets of cold water on their heads. Well, Bill Simon Jr. went on to Williams College, is the same small liberal arts college that Bill Bennett and Faye Vinson would attend. He was the captain of their Division Three tennis team and made the laughable proclamation to his dad that he was thinking about going on to the professional tennis tour after college. And his dad said to him, how would you like to go to work for a bank instead? And luckily, that's what he did. I went to work at J.P. Morgan and I, I felt like a fish out of water because I hadn't majored in econ. I didn't have an MBA. Uh, The training program was like 25 people. I think two-thirds of them had MBAs. The others had majored in econ. So one day, you know, part of the training program was every area of the bank would come through and tell you about what they did. So one day, the foreign exchange department came through. And I really thought it sounded great. And what, what sounded even better to me was that there were 12 foreign exchange traders in that year they had made a third of the profits at Morgan. They had made $42 million. The profits at Morgan were about $150 million. And the head of the department had never been to college. So rather than have an MBA, he hadn't even been to college. And there were 12 traders. I was the 13th. None of the 12 had gone to college. But they were responsible for a big slug of the earnings at J.P. Morgan. So I thought, this is beautiful. So I called Dad. I said, Dad, I think I found home. He said, that's great. That's how I started. You know, the hell with these bankers and Harvards and Yales. You know, the Poison Ivy League. You know, you got him going. And next thing I know, it was in a foreign exchange department. It was fantastic. But like many folks, it would take Bill some time to find his real calling in life. After about a year, I went to my boss. And I said, I want to go to law school. Well, he kept giving me promotions for six years. <laughs> I finally said, you know, I want to, I really, this time I'm serious, I'm going to law school. So I did. And then I came back to New York City after law school and I uh, went to work for a firm that specialized in trial work, which is what I wanted to do. 
And the only problem was young people didn't get into court at that law firm or at most law firms. Okay. So I applied for a job at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And it's kind of a plum job for a young lawyer. For a young lawyer to be a prosecutor either at the District Attorney's Office or the U.S. Attorney's Office is a great opportunity to get into court. The U.S. Attorney's Office has a little bit more cachet because they have larger cases. But either one is terrific. So I remember I called Dad again. I said, Dad, you know, I applied to the U.S. Attorney's Office. He said, that's great, you know. The guy that runs that's a real shitster. And I said, how'd you know that? He said, oh, everybody knows about Rudy Giuliani. Well, Rudy was 38 years old. And he was a young trial lawyer that knew no fear. And he was tremendously loyal to his assistant U.S. attorney. So I became one of his assistant U.S. attorneys. Rudy was one of the first people to successfully use the relatively new RICO law, which allowed prosecutors to pursue the mafia as a whole and hold the big bosses accountable for the crimes of their underlings by claiming that they were all part of one criminal enterprise. And in the 1980s, Giuliani's office went after New York's five crime families, the Gambinos, Lucchese's, Genovese's, the Bonanos, and the Columbos in one single case. I was assigned to get a judgment against each of the five for $100 million apiece. So I got the judgment, and then I had a press conference. And at the press conference, one of the reporters, you know, kind of a wise guy, said, how do you plan on collecting $100 million from, you know, Ristelli, who says he's a truck dispatcher? And I looked at him and I said, well, first we're going to ask nicely. And, <laughs> and that was the headlines in the Daily News. First we asked nicely. And when we come back, more on this remarkable life, our on leadership series... Bill Simon's story. Actually, we just heard some of his dad's story here on Our American Stories. Continue with Bill Simon Jr.'s story. One day his dad, who had a very successful career in finance, wanted his sons involved in managing his money. If they wanted to, of course, he said. One of those non-invitation invitations. But Bill and his brother Peter ultimately agreed, and they launched the private equity firm W.E. Simon & Sons, and Bill moved to California for what was supposed to be two years to try and fix some of his dad's bad investments. But 27 years later, Bill is still there. His second wife, Cindy, wanted to stay, and Bill had been married once before. He didn't want to make it twice. My first marriage, what happened? You know, we, we shouldn't have gotten married. It was a mistake. And uh, 
you know, I take, uh, I take full blame. If you'd asked me the day after we separated whose fault was it, I would have said hers. But now with the benefit of having gotten married happily and what have you, I, you know, I was, I, I wanted to live in New York and live a fast life. And she wanted to live in Vermont and live a slow life. And it was a case where, you know, I thought at my age, I think I was 26 then, love would conquer all. But at least in my case, it didn't conquer all. <laughs> so I thought maybe if I left Morgan and went to law school, that maybe that would be a good ticket. You know, so I moved up to Boston, which is a little slower pace than New York, went to law school. And at the end of law school, I looked at my wife, I said, I got to go back to New York. This is where all my network is. And that's where the job was. And so, you know, in the beginning, she didn't want to go. And then I said, you know, Claudia, I think we ought to just separate. You know, I don't think this is working. And, you know, we had had a child a year before, so it was hard. And, uh, but we never, you know, God's honest truth, we never had a harsh word, you know, meaning we had harsh words during the marriage until we separated. But when we separated, she said to me, I'm sure we're going to fight over our assets. I said, no, I'm going to give you everything. And I said, the only thing I want to keep are some of the wedding gifts that my parents' friends gave because they'll want to know, you know, a chair, you know, whatever. But I gave her everything else. I gave her, we had bought a house. Uh, anyway, and I think that set the tone. So if people have asked me, you know, what was it like to get divorced like you just did, Lee? And I say, look, we all make mistakes. And when you do, own up to them. And don't try to cut a sharp deal, you know, with your wife or your husband. You know, just, and I gave her as much money as I could afford. You know, I was making, when I went back to New York City working in the law firm, I was making 50000 a year. And I had an ex-wife and a child. So I, I, I rented an apartment on 30th Street and Madison Avenue, and I, and I couldn't afford it, even there. And so I found a friend of mine I was volunteering with on Wednesday nights at Covenant House. He said, move in with me. He lived right across the street from Macy's on Herald Square. I mean, and it was such a bad area in those days that my sisters refused to allow my mother to come to the apartment. But that was, it was the right thing to do. And, and my ex-wife knew that. You know, I said, look, you can look at the books, you can look at whatever, and, uh, you know, I'm going to give you every penny that I can. And, uh, you know, if I get a bonus at Christmas, I just give it to her. And to this day, we're on good terms. You know, we, have a, we haven't had a harsh word since we separated in 82. And so now that's 30, 35 years ago especially since we have a child, I, you know, I talk to her at least once every couple of weeks, see how she's doing, what she knows. And, but it was hard. It was a public thing. I mean, I'm sure I felt more humiliated. I'm sure I thought other people were talking about it more than they actually were. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They were feeling bad for me. I was embarrassed and humiliated. And, you know, when I get back to New York in 82, all of a sudden, I found myself divorced, making 50 grand a year, 
starting out again at the bottom of the, of the rung. You know, when I was 24, I was some hotshot trader at J.P. Morgan. And all my buddies, you know, they were hotshots at Goldman or wherever they were. And while I was in law school, you know, they'd continued marching up the food chain. So now they were partners at Goldman. They were partners at some of these really great firms. And I was starting out again from zero. So I didn't have as many friends anymore <laughs> as I had when I left for law school. And then, you know, obviously I felt embarrassed about getting divorced, so that probably shrunk the circle even more. So I concentrated on just trying to do what I could do. You know, I'd had a big head in my 20s. I'd stopped going to church. You know, so these two things that happened to me, life changers really, were I started working for Rudy, who was just a little bit, it was a lot like Dad. You know, he was somebody who gave you a lot of responsibility and held you accountable. Do you know what I mean? So I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office pretty much. I tried to be the first one in, the last one out. Because at that point, I was so low in my life. I was like, the only thing I can do is work harder than everybody else, be fit, go back to church, you know, do the things that I was doing right in high school and college when everything was going good, you know? How do I get my mojo back, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So I went to this, there's a church right next to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I would go to 1210 Mass every day. It got out at 1230. I used to call it Our Lady the Stopwatch because you could be in, you could be out, bada bing, you're back at work, you know? And so all of a sudden, you know, the ship started turning slowly, you know, but I, I had a good job. Uh, I didn't feel so self-conscious, you know, to some of my buddies, you know, wherever they were, partners at Goldman and what have you. And, you know, I tried a couple of important cases and I started feeling really good about myself. And then, you know, I think started falling into place. So things were turning around for Bill and his life. He was living a good life, too, an upright life. And part of that included going to another Catholic sacrament. I went through my wilderness phase in my 20s, you know, when I was master of the universe. So... I start at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I say, I'm going to go back to confession. I haven't been to confession in many years. And the way it does in the Catholic Church, you say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was however long it was, a month, two months. So I go, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was 17 years ago. I don't know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> and the, you know what the priest says? He says, are you sorry for all your sins? I said, Absolutely. He said, you know, you're done. <laughs> and, and you know what I said? I said, if I thought, it was, if I had known it was going to be that easy, I would have come back a long time ago. <laughs> Fast forward to Bill working with his dad and brother at their private equity firm. And years later, he had done very well and made a lot of money. And he was then introduced to Bob Buford, a guy based out of Dallas, Texas. I flew down to Dallas because I thought that it might be great to meet him and hear his story. So he told me his story, which was he's, you know, built a cable company and he's went through the same phase. You know, he lost his son and, you know, he went through this phase where is that all there is? And he wrote this book called Halftime, which I read. And I said, this is, a, this is great. You know, like the 80-20 rule where you spend 80% of your time 
trying to be successful, and 20% volunteering at your church or something else, and then you want to flip it. And the goal is, if you're 45, see if you can't flip it by 60 or whatever. So you're doing 80% helping other people and 20% just minding the store, you know, making sure that you're, you know, you're still financially secure. And that made a lot of sense. He called it going from success to significance. And I never forgot that. Success to significance. And we're going to get to that significance part in the next part of our interview, our story of Bill Simon Jr., our On Leadership series continues after these commercial messages. And now, for the final segment, we're doing an in-depth look at one man's life, Bill Simon's life, Bill Simon Jr. And now we're hitting that post-halftime part, that, that significance part that he's looking for. And so many of us are when we hit that second phase of our life. And he wanted to work in the field that involved the greatest force in his life. What some people have said, and I, I think I'd agree with it, is that the local church, whether it's a Catholic church or a Protestant church or evangelical or a synagogue, is the greatest engine for good in human history. Nobody can argue with that. Greater than any government. No government's been around 2,000 years. You know, greater than any business. No business has been around for 2,000 years. It's the greatest engine for good in human history. And he's talking about the Catholic church. And yet it's one that's not doing as well as it can and that's what Bill wanted to focus on. In 1980, 28% of Americans identified as Catholic. But today, less than 21% do. And for every 10 Catholics in the Chicago area, there are now four ex-Catholics. And it's not just a Catholic problem. In just seven years, identification with the Christian church has fallen by nearly 8%. So Bill decided to do what he does. He dove in. You know, there's that old saying, a glass half empty can also be called half full. In this case, it was a glass that was about 90% empty is 10% full. Here's what I mean by that. Thanks to Bob Buford. Bob would call me generally, you know, every other week, or I'd call him, and he'd say, do you see this book? Do you see this book? And one time he called, he said, you gotta read this book called Move. It's by Bill Hybels, senior people at Willow Creek. And I said, great, so I got the book. And basically what the book said was, we did a survey of our 30,000 people in our flock just to find out how great we were doing. Heibel said, I fully expected a lot of pats on the back. And you know what came back? 15% are paying attention. The rest of the 85% are mailing it in, if they're showing up at all. And I went, that's the glass 10% full. And Heibel said, well, I got a choice. I can either try to get that 15% number up, or I can take this consulting document and throw in the trash. And so I called Heibel's, and I said, Bill, I read your book. It's unbelievable. Thank you for your honesty. And we, we became friends. 
And it turns out that in every tradition, now I don't know, I haven't researched every tradition, but Heibel said, look, it's the truth across our evangelical world. So we assume that evangelicals have all the energy and the enthusiasm and the engagement. They do not. Catholics, it's worse. The average, you know, depends who you talk to. Matt Kelly, Four Signs of a Dynamic Disciple, Catholic Leadership Institute, Disciple Maker Index, you know, they all come out at around 7 to 10 to 12 percent. So it's really low. So look, I'm a value investor. That's how I built my business. I like to buy a dollar for 50 cents. I think Warren Buffett's great. Warren Buffett says, give me a hurdle. And if, as long as it's not over six inches high, I'll be happy to jump over it. I look for the six-inch hurdles. So I say to myself, I'll bet you we can double these numbers without breaking a sweat. To go from 10 to 20 in the investment world, you don't have to break a sweat as long as you pick a business that's got you know, something to it. To go from 20 to 40 is harder. To go from 40 to 80, I'm going to leave it to Einstein to do that. If I can find something where I can go from 10 to 20, perfect. At 20, I might want to take in a partner. I'm not as confident I can get to 40. At 40, you own it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I'm applying the same thing to the religious world. Same thing. I was like, all right, let's get to work. You know what I'm saying? So Bill decided to found a nonprofit called Parish Catalyst to explore what made some Catholic parishes thrive while most declined. And out of the 17,000 Catholic parishes in America, they studied 244 of the most exceptional ones, the best of the best, and their 49 findings about them formed the basis of Bill's book, Great Catholic Parishes. Now, if you were going to take these 49 findings and say, I only have time for one sentence, I would say it's all about shared leadership. Shared. Now, shared is a big word in the Catholic Church because sharing is not what happened up until the 60s, 70s. You know, lay people, pray, pay, and obey. And Rick Warren would say, go away. Pray, pay, obey, go away. Now, given the demographics, the declining vocations, given the recognition that lay people do have some skills to offer, when we interviewed our pastors, our 244 pastors, 80% say, we share leadership. You know, A, we don't have a lot of fellow priests to help us, and B, we got a lot of skill in the lay pool. So we share leadership. So that's the first concept. Now, how do you share it? That's where we came up with three different types. First, you can delegate, like my dad used to do. Here's what I want you to do, and I'm gonna go play golf. No, I'm only kidding. And then there's consultors. You know, many pastors, 47%, like to consult, then they make the decision themselves. Apparently, that's what Reagan liked to, used to do. He, he would call it round-tabling. You know, let's round-table it. Go around the table, ask everybody's opinion. Reagan would say, I'll be back to you tomorrow with a decision. And then there's the collaborators. You know, let's say, let's all talk about it and together make the decision. So that's the three kinds of shared leadership. And it's interesting, we did not invent these terms, Lee. Shared. We did not invent collaborate. We did not invent delegate. We did not invent consult. You know who invented them? Peter Drucker. So when you say this might work in other places, this is right out of business school. 
This is Business School Peter Drucker Management 101. Bill and Parrish Catalyst found four common practices that made parishes great. The first being shared leadership, the second being creating a variety of formation programs to meet parishioners where they currently are in their faith journey, the third being dedicating significant resources to liturgical celebrations, and fourth, intentionally evangelizing to both insiders and outsiders. Homilies are one reason why people invite their friends to come to church. Hey, check out my pastor. He gives a hell of a homily. You know, you, you, you may not be a Catholic. You may be a Catholic that's lapsed. Just forget about it. I call my pastor Beethoven in my backyard. Because people would say, what's so great about the pastor? And I say, his homilies are incredible. I said, let me ask you a question. It's in the book. If you could go see Beethoven five minutes away by car, play a different composition, new, every week, and you knew that if you got there on time, you get a great seat, and there's only like five, 600 people, would you go? Everybody says yes, right? That's the head nodding test that I learned when I was on the campaign trail. Well, people are nodding. Then I knew I got them. And that's, you know, when you get a great, like a Rick Warren or a Hybels or an Andy Stanley or a Lloyd Torgerson, you know, people are going to come. People, you know, St. Monica's, it's 27 years ago we moved out here, 2,000 families, Monsignor Torgerson. 27 years later, 11,000 families, Monsignor Torgerson. This is a mega church. This is as big as Saddleback. It's as big as Willow Creek. And it's not, I don't know how much of you could say is homilies, but not insignificant. My wife, you know, she said that uh, I got some good news and I want you to know one thing. I said, what's the good news? After 15 years out here, she said, I, uh, I want to become a Catholic, but the one thing is you had nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know, it was just, it's, it's an amazing place. And here's Bill reading one of his pastor's very best homilies, and it's a heck of a story about listening. The captain was desperate, and the crew was dying of thirst. Then, in the far horizon, a steamship appeared heading directly toward them. As it drew near, the captain called out, We need water! Give us water! After a silence that felt like an eternity, someone on the steamship shouted back, Lower your buckets where you are. The captain was furious. He called again, Please, give us some water. We are dying of thirst. The steamer gave the same reply, Lower your buckets where you are. With that, the steamship sailed away. The captain was beside himself. His anger turned into despair. He did not know what to do. He wandered the boat, lost and hopeless. Eventually, he went below the deck. There he watched a haggard roman shaking violently as he lowered a bucket into the sea. The captain then watched this man taste what was hoisted up. The second the water hit this man's lips, the captain knew. It was perfectly sweet, fresh water. It turns out the ship was just outside the mouth of the Amazon River for all those weeks. All along, they had been sitting right on top of all the fresh water they ever needed. 
And you're listening to the voice of William Simon Jr., the book, by the way, Great Catholic Parishes. And by the way, pick it up if you're running any kind of church or synagogue. It applies to everyone. And Bill Simon's life, what a life. I want to close with Monsignor Torgerson's final words in that homily. What we are really seeking is already inside us, waiting to be discovered and waiting to be embraced. The Holy Spirit of God, who's been living within us since the moment of our baptism, the Holy Spirit is saying to us at this very moment from deep in our hearts, lower your buckets right where you are. Taste and see. Bill Simon's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, in 1799, George Washington died. And he died at his home, Mount Vernon, in Northern Virginia, at the age of 67. News of his passing touched people around the world, far beyond America's stature in the world at the time. Remember, we were a very, very young country. But Americans everywhere were mourning. We all know George Washington's name, but do we really know about him? Let's turn a historian, David McCullough, two Pulitzers, two National Book Awards, Presidential Medal of Freedom. Who was George Washington, and how did he lead? He wasn't an intellectual. He wasn't a great speaker or a brilliant writer. He wasn't, as a military leader, a, a brilliant tactician or a strategist, but he had the capacity to make people want to follow him. And and if there was a more courageous human being who ever lived, I don't know who it was. And it was the courage of his convictions. And he would not quit. Uh, every, every sign was, it was over, you've lost, give up, it's not worth it. But no, he, he wouldn't stop. And he was the same kind of a unifying force when he became president, maybe more so. You know, it, it didn't just come to us out of the sky. It just, these advantages we have, this system of life and government and our freedoms didn't just happen. Somebody had to work hard and suffer, and many of them, of course, died to make it happen. And the doubters were all around. It wasn't as if everybody was, oh, this is a wonderful thing, let's, let's go out and fight for it. A fraction of the country was for it. A fraction of the country was willing to serve in the army. I think maybe if there's a message in Washington's life, it's that, it's that willingness to serve and not just talk about what you're going to do, but to act. It takes both. And uh, absolute selfless service to the country in, as they said, war and peace, for no pay, nothing in it for him. And then when he gets the ultimate power, as almost nobody could imagine, he gave it up, willingly, of his own choice. And uh, this was after the war was over and he'd won. He was the conquering general. He was the hero. 
He could have been anything he wanted, czar, king, potentate, whatever. He could have made the presidency into a totally different kind of office. But he relinquished power. He said, no, I'm going back to Mount Vernon. And when George III heard that he might, he, George Washington, might do that, he said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. And uh, because nobody had done that before. This was the, the ultimate uh, uh, ideal of Cincinnatus, you know, that uh, you, the, the conquering general, the conquering hero returns to the plow. Back in the Revolutionary Warrior, our nation was at best an underdog. What were the odds that Washington faced? Well, when the British arrived in uh, the lower bay uh, of uh, New York, New York Harbor, and when they came up into the bay with a force of ships, it was the largest single armada ever seen in the 18th century. Largest armada ever sent forth to suppress a, another people in another part of the world in, in all of history up until then. There had never been anything like it, and, it, and they landed 32,000 troops on Staten Island, which was more than the entire population of the largest city in the colonies, which was Philadelphia. And when they came ashore at Long Island, they defeated our army. The largest battle of the, of the Revolutionary War was fought on Long Island, and it was a disaster. And the retreat that followed uh, was uh, brilliant. Uh, they escaped at night from uh, Long Island, from Brooklyn Heights, which was sort of the Dunkirk of the Revolution, um, a masterful demonstration of leadership on Washington's part because an orderly retreat, even for an experienced army, is the most difficult maneuver to make. And to make it with an inexperienced army at night across the East River, which isn't a river at all but a tidal estuary, uh, was almost uh, beyond imagining. And, and again, the British woke up the next day, as they had in Boston, to discover the guns on Dorchester Heights, to discover that this army they were chasing had vanished. Now, that's, it was brilliant and it was masterful, but you don't win wars by retreating. And that's all they did for the rest of that year was, uh, was retreat. And the army kept getting smaller and smaller. By the time uh, they were down in New Jersey, getting close to the Delaware River, uh, the, the size of Washington's army was only about 5,000, and probably only 3,000 of those men were fit for duty. And here, here comes the British uh, juggernaut uh, with... Uh, you know, 25, 30,000 men if they needed it. And uh, that was the time that, as uh, Thomas Paine said, that tried men's souls. And uh, Washington managed to get across the river, and then he took stock, and people were saying, look, it's over, and we've lost. But he refused to see it that way, and so what he did, what is often what one has to do when all hope's gone, he attacked. And he, that's when he crossed the Delaware, Christmas night and struck at Trenton and won, and then a few days later turned around and struck at Princeton and won. Now, those weren't big battles. They were engagements. But the fact that he'd won, the fact that they had defeated this foe, was of immense importance to morale all through the country. And that really was not just a turning point in the Revolution or in our history. It was a turning point in world history because it wasn't going to be the same again after that. And that was force of, force of character force of something inside that man and those people around him, Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox, John Glover and others like that, and the men in the ranks, um, 
who were few and they had no clo adequate clothing and that some of them had no shoes and the men died. Men froze to death that night on the march to Trenton, just dropped dead from, from exposure in the army, in the, on the march. And, uh, and he held it together. It's, it's amazing. Celebrating George Washington's life by celebrating his death. He died today on this day in history in 1799. More with David McCullough. And by the way, we'll bring you Washington's farewell address at the end of this hour. It's as relevant today as it was then, the things he was talking about when he left office. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the life of George Washington. He died on this day in history in 1799. And we've been hearing from David McCullough about Washington as a leader facing daunting odds. But what shaped this leader? What was Washington like as a young man? He wasn't always successful. There's an idea that we have, I suppose that it comes from people who are born athletes or born musical uh, uh, virtuosos or whatever, that he had to work hard to become George Washington. It wasn't easy. He suffered defeat. He made mistakes. He made blunders. Um, he was frustrated in his ambitions uh, again and again as a young man. He had a lot to learn. Uh, he had to, uh, he, he had to uh, get, go to the wilderness, which he did. I mean, that's something people don't understand. If you, you talk about someone getting into outward bound, let's say. This was the most outward bound young man in uh, Virginia uh, in his day when it was real wilderness and real uh, adversity uh, living uh, uh, with, on the land or in the wilderness. And his, um, his resilience, physical, more, mental, uh, spiritual, this guy could really take it and uh, and yes, he does sometimes resort to self-pity in his letters. And yes, he can at times not tell the entire truth. And yes, he uh, uh, can let people down. And he's a human being. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Look, if they were gods, they wouldn't deserve much credit, would they? Because gods can do whatever they want. These are human beings who did what they did. That's what makes it a story, and that's what makes it uh, an encouraging story, an inspirational story, if I may use that word. As Washington grew older, he broadened his interests and refined the character traits apparent in his youth. And here was a man who too few people understand uh, loved interior decoration, loved uh, architecture, loved landscape design, was an avid uh, uh, agriculturalist, as they called it then, who, uh, who was fastidious about his clothing, his appearance. He had all kinds of human traits that are extremely interesting and revealing. Um, everybody says he was a fox hunter. Well, what kind of a fox hunter was he? He was the kind of fox hunter that was out there at the front 
as close to the hounds as you could get. Very dangerous place to be. And who would not give up. He would fox hunt for seven, eight hours until they'd got the fox. He just was that kind of a person, tenacious. Well, you know, if you're going to be in a fight, that's a good kind of leader to have. And, of course, we have always, as I suppose every nation and people have in all time, we admire that kind of leadership and courage, and particularly if it's in a cause that's just and a cause that's far beyond his own self-aggrandizement or enrichment of any kind. So just how important was this tenacious leader in the American Revolution? Well, he was the leader. He was the commander-in-chief. He was the, uh, the, the winning general, in simplest terms. He won. Took a lot of good luck and the help of the French, and it took a long time, the longest war in our history except for Vietnam. And then once we had won, he became the stabilizing factor in the divisiveness that immediately emerged between the regions, particularly north and south. And, uh, and he held the country together for eight years as president. And they, this isn't something that later-day scholars have, uh, have imposed on the, on the material from the past. This is in what they were saying then. He is what's holding us together. He was the, the force of unity. And at that stage, we needed that desperately because there were all kinds of forces outside and inside that were trying to break it up. Europe would have loved to have seen us break up. The faster, the better. What can we learn today from this revolutionary period? One of the lessons of any great creative effort is that it takes all kinds of people to make it happen. And it took all kinds of people to make the miracle of the creation of the United States of America happen. And they weren't the same. They brought different qualities, different abilities, different talent. What Washington brought was the, was the gift of leadership, the gift of courage, leadership, character, conviction, willpower. We will make it happen. And there's no limit to what can be accomplished with goodwill and hard work. And that's a tonic, you know, that's a powerful message, particularly for a people that are struggling just to, to, make a, to, to make a start. Does all this mean George Washington is our greatest president? I don't believe much in ranking presidents. I, 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 are you ranking them as a human being? Are you ranking them as a politician? Are you ranking them in... Uh, in view of what they accomplished. There's so many criteria, so many measurements. But Washington was our greatest president. He was the one at the start. He held it together and he set the example. He, he was the defining model of what the president should be and do. We could not have been more fortunate. I mean, you talk about good luck. Good heavens what he could have been, what he could have done that would have been so detrimental, so um, disruptive. And uh, now Lincoln's great gift was a gift of soul, a depth of soul. And, and once again, he held the country together and fought a war uh, successfully to free people from bondage. And 
uh, but uh, Washington is there at the beginning. And the, and the Revolutionary War is the most important war in our history because that's how we came to be. What should we know about Washington today? He held the country together, held the cause together, and did so um, in a way that sets an example for behavior as a citizen that we can all learn from and that his picture really should be, along with Abraham Lincoln, back in every schoolroom, as it used to be. And uh, this isn't ancestor worship, or this isn't uh, uh, old-fashioned history. This is is reality. This is the truth. And uh, to be indifferent to people like Washington, to be uninterested in people like Washington, is really a form, in part, of ingratitude. We ought to be down on our knees every day thanking God that we are part of this country. And we ought to know about the people who made it possible and thank them, in effect, by showing interest in them. And, uh, and their world, their time. I can't overemphasize that. The 18th century is one of the most interesting periods in all of human history. And it's full of tumult and change, just as ours is. And one other, one other thing. I think any time we get down and we think, oh, we're living in such a dangerous, uh, difficult, uncertain time, oh, woe is us, uh, excuse me, it's, we've been through far worse than we're going through now, uh, with far greater adversity, far more imminent danger, imminent danger, uh, we have um, we have suffered more. We have known uh, darker clouds on the horizon by far than we do now, and we've come through it, and we will again. And let's draw from that example. Draw strength from strength from history. History is a source of strength and should be. And Washington, of course, individually as a human being, as a as a figure in history, is one of the protagonists of our story. Is a is a is a particularly Uh, um, striking example of history as a source of strength. And indeed, it is true. It is a source of strength for all of us, no matter how tough the times. Many Americans have seen much tougher. We did Pearl Harbor. My goodness. Tougher times, you think? Battle of the Bulge, tougher times? Civil War? Let me show you and read to you How David McCullough started off 1776. It was January 14, and it was General George Washington in a memoir, a note to himself. The reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More on the life of George Washington, who died on this day in history in 1799. And as always, our This Day in History segments are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College.
This is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, George Washington died in 1799. And I went to law school at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and that's Jefferson's University. And about 90 minutes north, right outside of Washington, D.C., is Mount Vernon, Washington's home. If and when you get a chance to go to Washington, D.C., make sure you take that short car or cab ride out to Mount Vernon. It's spectacular. And take a bike ride. It's amazing. It's beautiful, right along the Potomac. So much of it preserved the way it would have been when Washington was alive. And in 2013, David McCullough gave the keynote address at the opening of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. This extraordinary library is a project of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. And Gayhart Gaines chaired the fundraising campaign for that library. In 2010, they set the ambitious goal of raising $100 million. In about three years, they raised 106, and not a penny from the government, all private donations. And it was simple. The Mount Vernon Ladies Association had, for all those years, done a magnificent job preserving the grounds. But the question became, what about the ideas? What about the story? And what about creating a place where scholars and researchers could come? And so they did it. And it's a 45,000-square-foot facility chock full of Washington's books, manuscripts, 1,500 books from the 18th century, and thousands of records from the 19th. And so in this speech, here is McCullough, the best American historian. There's no one like him. He's a national treasure. And in this speech, marking the opening of the library, McCullough framed the study of history in brilliant and simple terms. History is about people. It's not about dates and quotations and provisos and so forth. It's about people. History is human. When, in the course of human events, the operative word there is human. And if you begin to see those who preceded us as human beings who did not know how everything was going to turn out or how anything was going to turn out, because for them, as for us, there was no such thing as the foreseeable future. Never was, never will be. They did not know they were going to win the Revolutionary War. By all logical, realistic uh, observation, there was almost no chance we could win the Revolutionary War. We had no navy. We had no army to speak of, all amateurs in effect. And we had no money. And we were up against the most powerful nation on earth, who were our people. And yet, we brought it off. A miracle. Call it the hand of God, call it fate, call it luck. A miracle. As was the man who led that turning point in history. McCullough reminds us that on paper, Washington wasn't even close to perfect, or even that impressive at first. So what made this man great? Imagine only a sixth grade education, relatively little 
experience in war, and his first great moment was a flop, a failure. In Pennsylvania, he started the, started the French and Indian War at Fort Necessity. It was a foolish, almost adolescent thing to have done. He made repeated mistakes during the Revolution, but he always learned from his mistakes. And he had the capacity to get up and keep going. When we choose leaders, we should always take a careful look at how they've handled failure. Because failure is part of life. Failure is part of history. And it's those people who don't lapse into self-pity or blaming others, but who get back up and keep the faith and keep going. And he's the prime example of that. McCullough goes on to say that even though Washington did not have all that much formal education, he certainly studied and knew a great deal. Now, Washington read much more than people seem to understand. And so, in many respects, it's very helpful and revealing to go and look at what he read and what influenced him. One was the great poem by Alexander Pope, Pope's Essay on Man. He read it through and through. So did virtually all of his generation. But he hadn't gone to Harvard. He hadn't gone to uh, William and Mary. Uh, He had learned on his own. And in that magnificent work, there are two lines, which they all knew. And we would do well to remember them today. Act well your part. There all the honor lies. Not power, not glory, not fame, not wealth, honor. A word not too many people use anymore, or more discouragingly, don't understand. Our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor, honorable conduct, honorable behavior, offstage and on. He set an example of patriotism, and he set it again and again by understanding what really motivates people. He loved the theater. Act well your part. Fate, history, call it what you will, has cast you in a very lead role. And you have to imagine a a historic proscenium around you, and you go on that stage, and you play your part as you best possibly can. They all knew this line. It's one of the reasons they tried as best they could to act well their part. And with the attitude that what a chance to be a lead performer in this all-important turning point for the world. It was the idea, the goal, the sense of purpose and achievement that really drove those magnificent people of that day. This tiny little country on the edge of giant wilderness, population of 2,500,000 people, 500,000 of whom were in bondage, slavery. Two million people would produce that kind of a generation, a miracle. Indeed, it is a miracle, and we bring you this hour and many others on Washington. We'll have at least three or four a year 
because his life warrants those number of hours. Indeed, in a bit, we'll bring you back to the Battle of Yorktown uh, in the final segment, and we'll learn about how long Washington had been away from home, this beautiful home he'd built at Mount Vernon. And it was a long time, the sacrifices he and so many made for us, and that we don't know these stories in this country. Well, it's a tragedy, and we're trying to redress that here on Our American Stories, telling you every kind of story. Act well your part. There well the honor lies. And by the way, what you read, what you have your children read, shapes them. What ideas you put inside people's heads, what stories you put inside them. And that's the other goal here at Our American Stories, to tell the story of America to America. Because our schools aren't doing it. So we're giving it a shot. More with David McCullough after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's our final segment in our celebration of the life and death of George Washington. He died on 1799 on this day in history. As always, are these days in history brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can send your kids to learn all the finer things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you with their terrific online courses And my goodness, their Constitution 101 class is better than anything I ever took at the University of Virginia School of Law. You learn about the actual Constitution, the Federalist Papers, the great, great minds coming together in this remarkable moment in history. And the 18th century, David McCullough is right. By accident, by divine intervention, or maybe both, or all of the above, a miracle happened in America at this time. Back to Mount Vernon and this speech in 2013 for the opening of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington. And again, get to Mount Vernon if you go to D.C. If your school's going, if the family's going, don't leave it out. And go to the Air and Space Museum. It's wonderful. But there is no Air and Space Museum without George Washington. Always know your people's story. You're lost without knowing your own story. So McCullough focused on one moment in Washington's life as a living embodiment of the man's leadership. We often hear of Washington as a soldier or as a politician, but McCullough wants us to see him as something more. And one of the points I want to make, if at all possible, contribute to George Washington today is that yes, he was a man of action, if ever there was. And yes, actions speak louder than words. 
but not always. Not always. Words can change history. Words can change the outlook of a generation. It's happened again and again. And words can be what motivate the action. One of the most dramatic and telling and crucial scenes in our history, because it took place in the Revolutionary War, during the Revolutionary War, on December 31st, 1776, the day that all the, all the uh, recruitment of the Continental Army, all they'd signed up for, expired. Every single one of Washington's troops, as of the next day, January 1st, 1877, was free to go home. And Washington called them out in formation at Trenton on December 31st, and he told them the following. He offered a bounty of $10 for all who would stay another six months after their enlistments expired. A considerable sum, by the way, at that time. And he had done it without any authorization from Congress. And he, as he wrote in a letter afterward to the Congress, I thought at no time to stand on trifles. <laughs> the soldiers were all lined up, and he approached them on his magnificent horse. A commander rides a, com a magnificent horse. And he addressed them, and he said, in the most affectionate manner, that they would get $10. And um, those willing to stay were told to step forward. The drums rolled. Imagine this scene. The drums rolled. Minutes passed, and not one man stepped forward. Not one. That was a great defeat as any suffered in battle. So what did George Washington do next? He turns on the horse, rides off a little bit, collects himself, turns the horse about and approaches them again. If that didn't work, I'll try something else. He said the following, my brave fellows, you have done all I ask you to do and more than could be reasonably expected. But your country is at stake. Your wives, your houses, and all that you hold dear. You have worn yourselves out with fatigues and hardships. But we know not how to spare you. If you will consent to stay one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you can probably never do under any other circumstance. Again, the drums sounded. The men began stepping forward. As Nathaniel Green wrote, God Almighty inclined their hearts to listen to the proposal and they engaged anew. Great moment, breathtaking moment. Really happened, it's not some playwright's concoction. However, there was a playwright in the background, William Shakespeare, whom Washington also read. 
You remember Henry V. This story shall the good man teach his son. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, England, gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here. You are lucky to be here. You are lucky to be able to help your country. And he says, you will provide, render a service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you can probably never do under any other circumstance. Same idea. Now, I can't prove, no one can prove that he drew it from that, but surely that's what it is. Surely it is. And again, it was an appeal to honor, not an appeal to the material. The $10 didn't do it. And it never does. Not the big stuff. That's never what rallies a people. Money. Again, act well your part. There well the honor lives. And words matter. And McCulloch proves that. And so I wanted to share just a couple of things from Washington's farewell address to the country. Because it's just pretty remarkable. In looking forward to the moment which is intended to terminate the career of my public life, my feelings do not permit me to suspend the deep acknowledgement of that debt of gratitude which I owe to my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me, still more for the steadfast confidence with which it has supported me and for the opportunities I have thence enjoyed of manifesting my invaluable attachment by services faithful and persevering, though in usefulness unequal to my zeal. If benefits have resulted to our country from these services, let it always be remembered to your praise as an instructive example in our annals that under circumstances in which the passions agitated in every direction were liable to be misled amidst appearances sometimes dubious, vicissitudes of fortune often discouraging, in situations in which not infrequently want of success has countenanced the spirit of criticism, the constancy of your support was the essential prop of the efforts and a guarantee of the plans by which they were affected. Profoundly penetrated with this idea, I shall carry it with me to my grave. He's thanking the American people for giving him the confidence to do for them what probably only he could do. It's a beautiful story. And this from George Washington's farewell address a bit later on, and again, this is 1796. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest grips and props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for prosperity, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect 
that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. And then we get to the close of this remarkable address. Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects, not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils to which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence, and that after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion as myself must soon to be the mansions of the rest. Relying on its kindness in this as in other things, and actuated by that fervent love towards it, which is so natural to a man who views in it the native soil of himself and his progenitors for several generations, I anticipate with pleasing expectation the retreat in which I promise myself to realize, without alloy, the sweet enjoyment of partaking in the midst of my fellow citizens the benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever-favorite object of my heart, and the happy reward, as I trust, of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers. The life of George Washington died on this day in history in 1799.